You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. Fully Loaded Chew is tobacco-free, long cut, and pouches that gives you the same pack, dip, spit, and buzz that you're used to without tobacco. Fully Loaded Chew comes in nine flavors and is made with all food-grade ingredients and tobacco-free nicotine. To give us a try, head on over to FullyLoadedChew.com for a $1 can of chew with free shipping when you enter the code OUTDOOR1, O-U-T-D-O-O-R, and the number one. For more information on our product line, visit FullyLoadedChew.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. Welcome to the Huntivore Podcast, powered by Sportsman's Nation, where we celebrate the hunting and fishing lifestyle through the utilization and consumption of our wild game. No egos. Fork in hand, beer in the other. No status. A piece of red meat on a hot grill and turn it into a burnt offering. Just catch it, cut it, cook it. This is episode 92, Adam Berkelman's The Intrepid Eater and Wild Game Sushi. On this episode of Huntivore, Nick is joined by the intrepid eater, Adam Berkowitz. Adam is a self-taught cook who has a passion for wild game, growing and foraging, and making amazing dishes out of both. Together, these guys chat about some deep topics related to self-sustainability, responsible meat eating, and finish up with a fun way to serve wild game in sushi rolls. All this and more on the next episode of Huntivore. Well, hey, folks, beautiful evening here in Michigan. Uh, we've got a few warmer temperatures, getting rid of some of this uh, hard-packed snow, only to be followed up with, I think, with some rain here soon and a nice sheet of ice. So we're going to be looking for things to do here at home, either being able to salt our way out of this or we're going to venture outside and try to make some sort of fun of what's going to be happening in the great outdoors. Um, but, hey, we're getting closer and closer to spring, which gives us more ideas on trying to be, I guess, want to see spring-like with our food. And who other to have uh, join us tonight? We will have Adam, Adam uh, Berkelmans. Did I say that right, Adam? Yeah, that's right. Berkelmans. Gotcha. Yeah. Hey, I'm sorry to slaughter that, but you would know him as the intrepid eater on uh instagram adam thanks so much for uh for joining us this evening thanks for having me gotcha well hey are are you a craft drinker adam are you into the the craft beer scene or is is beer not a thing that you're you're into well sadly i used to be huge in the craft beer scene and and really really enjoyed it but i developed a some sort of allergy to beer which was a devastating blow, and uh, now I can't even drink a Corona anymore without feeling oh my uh, goodness iller than I can stand. So I've uh, moved on to craft distilleries instead. So oh good, yeah, oh good. At least you can get something there. I was like, I just brought up a really bad scenario. <laughs> so going to be the... crying already. I don't know exactly. We just started the conversation. He's already wiping tears. So into the distilleries, um, the clear liquors, or are you into more of the brown stuff? Well, it kind of once once my beer days were were numbered, I started with the um, more of the clear spirits, getting into gins, um, exploring all the different botanicals I can add to gin, and then um, 
whiskey started tasting better and better and I started getting whiskeys and now um, I'm drinking scotch and a couple different things. So, so it's really been quite a, a ride into the, from, from beer to clear to brown. <laughs> gotcha. Gotcha. I, uh, I was just going to say, I've opened up another porter. I feel it's still cold enough and dark enough to continue mm. to go with a porter. I got a poet here from New Holland. I don't know if that's anything that, uh, you guys have up there because you're in Ontario, correct? Are you in the Toronto area or quite a ways away? So I'm just uh, north of Kingston, which is closer to Syracuse than anywhere else in the States. Um, and I'm a few hours uh, east of Toronto. Gotcha. Um, so you're kind of yeah. over the over the New York area. Yeah, that's correct. Gotcha. Gotcha. And working with, or at least trying out some gin, that's one thing I think that's an an underappreciated liquor. Um, I've had a few gin and tonics where, and granted, I've had a professional make it for me. Someone as a bartender, I said, I, I want a gin and tonic, but I want you to make it spicy for me, or I want you to really surprise me um, with, with what you bring me. And I have just been really surprised at like all the different directions. I, m- I mentioned spicy a little bit there. I had one where it really was heavy on like the ginger aspect, and a man, it just lit my mouth up. It was really like one of those like, whoo, this is. I almost need a water to go along with it. But then at the same time, I've had it on the clear other spectrum where someone brought me one where it's like so much uh, fruitiness in it, whether it be from juniper and several other like small berries. I think there was some like dried blueberries that they had in that as well. But I was just amazed at the spectrum that you can get from just one liquor. Yeah, it's, gin's incredible. And it's kind of a blank canvas that you can add all these different botanicals to. And, and you can create, like some of these gins have, you know, 30 different ingredients in them. So they, they can create really complex flavors. And then mixing with tonic, it's also a very complex kind of bitter flavor too. So, um, like a gin and tonic sounds like a simple drink, but it can be, you know, a million different flavors just all combined at once, and it can really leave a, a long-lasting impression on the tongue. So it's it's exciting to try. And a lot of new distilleries are are trying like wild ingredients and and forging for these really cool gins. Um, it's kind of an exciting time to to get into it actually. So. Have you got one that you are like a, a cocktail, basically that you are super excited about? Something that you've been that you like? I I'm gonna keep this one at my side. Like, if you were to make something with gin, what's your go-to cocktail? I would have to say the Negroni. It's like uh, at the first time I ever had a Negroni, I almost had to spit it out because it was so strong, and uh, <laughs> and. I'm like, how could anyone ever like this? But just like probably beer when you're a kid, and you, your first sip of beer doesn't go down all that great. Uh, eventually, I got into the the flavor, and it started to taste way better. And then I started to, to taste the individual elements of it. And uh, once you start using really good, cool gins and really cool vermouths in, in it, it's and uh, different bitters, like it can be a really awesome kind of adult drink. It's I, I really enjoy those a lot. Good deal, good deal. Man, we're off on our already our first rabbit trail here. Um, but The Intrepid Eater is is a website, and I found you actually through uh, Instagram. I really enjoy the way that you take pictures. Um, it, it just comes across that your, your plate just pops. The food is just so inviting in that image. But I love the way you just describe each dish, and you make it seem as a way like – man, I can jump in and I can make this. So I'm sure that a lot of my my uh, followers have found you, but tell me about Intrepid Eater. What What is your website and what is your handle all about? Well, I, the whole thing started about two years ago and uh, basically during the pandemic, um, my career kind of dried up um, around the time that all began. So I was looking to do something a little different. I was uh, taking a few online courses and I thought, why not do like start posting some food pictures and stuff? Because I've always been a very passionate cook and eater. Uh, And I really enjoyed it, like just a little like kind of I've always enjoyed teaching people about food and talking about food. So this was just another way I could do that. And and I could reach 
all my friends and family and annoy all of them at once rather than just one at a time. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, you know, I really enjoyed that. So then I, uh, the idea started forming in my head that I, like maybe I could actually do this as a job, do something with it that's uh, that I never really foresaw in my future. Um, so I kind of I came up with a logo one night. I came up with the the name, the Intrepid Eater. Um, the reason I called myself that is because I'm not an, not a chef. I never I've never been trained as a chef. Never worked in a restaurant really, other than Burger King, which might not <laughs> count. Uh, and so I don't really consider myself a chef, but I am an eater. I I, I know how to eat. <laughs> I know how to eat well, and I and I. You know that it's brought me in a, to a lot of different places, and and I met a lot of pe- different people through food. So, and I've always been known to to not shy away from the more esoteric, could you say, cuts of meat or types of food um, when I travel or even at home. Um, pretty passionate nose tail eater. Um, so I thought Intrepid was a good way to get that across that I, I like I'm willing to go anywhere and try anything for food. So. <laughs> Um, and from there I'd started, um, sharing it more and more and eventually to, to strangers and not just my, my friends and family. And I'm sure they were relieved and I got to, I started making the website. I started making recipes and it's just blossomed from there. And now I've got, uh, well over 200 recipes, 250 recipes on the website. I have, um, uh, Instagram and, and Facebook account and I've made some videos on YouTube and I've been working with all sorts of really cool organizations uh, developing recipes and, and writing about food and I've never been happier so it's it's been just wonderful excellent what a career path to just fall in your lap not being a trained chef do you feel that that gives you kind of like that freedom to be creative to mess up to be messy make mistakes and at the same time like really like celebrate your your uh successes at that point when you really make something that works is it is it really feel like you know what i don't feel hindered because i haven't been trained in how to properly julienne a carrot or you know i haven't been trained in the five fundamental sauces you don't seem to be hindered by any of that no i think it it allows me to approach things from outside the box to a large extent. I notice um, most of the people doing something similar to me who have been classically trained, um, their food generally remains through the lens of say French or Italian or classic Chinese, like whatever they trained with. And they do branch out elsewhere, but it sometimes seems like they're kind of stuck in that, that same way of looking at food all the time. Um, and I feel that it's not a terrible thing because they can make that kind of food a lot better than I can. <laughs> so, you know, they can really focus in on it, but uh, I've never been one to focus on anything. I, I'm, I like to spread myself super thin. So I kind of take everything I learned from all around the world and, and all these different international cuisines. And I've read hundreds of cookbooks and, and I just pile all that knowledge in my head and just kind of spit it out into whatever it comes out as. And, uh, I think it's pretty freeing to be able to do that. Um, in terms of the the pride of it, I feel like in one way I am like a chef in that I just yell at myself about my food all the time. So. <laughs> <laughs> There's a little Gorman Ramsey on your shoulder, and it's a it's at your image, and you just yeah, exactly. keep yelling at yeah. yourself. <laughs> <laughs> so so that you know it keeps me striving to constantly do better and 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 try new things and to never be fully satisfied with what I've done. I can always be, always be better, um, which can be a good and a bad thing, but it's the way, the way it is. So um, it helps to just keep pushing me through. Good deal. What I've also seen about what you've posted and what you write about and your passions with food, it really like resonates with, like self-sustainability and that's been something that's really been on my on my conscious lately is watching things go through food chains and be bogged down by um processes from 
other people handling it to large corporation to shipping to y- you name it. We're in this day and age where basically one way to protect yourself is to be self-sustainable and being able to acquire your own food, but at the same time being able to do something with that that you enjoy and to get the most out of. What does what does hunting and cooking done for you as far as sustainability and how does your passion all roll into that i've been uh listening to a couple of your like recent podcasts and and you've been talking a lot about the the supply chain breaking down and and sustainability like that and it's really resonated with me a lot um i feel like a seeing, broken uh, record every time that does come <laughs> up i'm trying to break away from it folks but at the same time it's so right in front of our face but anyway, it really ha- what saying. It, yeah, it really has just been brought to the forefront. Like it's always been something that we could kind of imagine, but with the pandemic and and all and the you know the ice storms in Texas and the wildfires and everything, it, it really has shown us firsthand what what an empty grocery store looks like and how fast that empty grocery or that grocery store can empty out. Um, and I'm in no way like a. a what I would call a, like a prepper or anything, but I did feel very nearly smugly self-satisfied <laughs> during the <laughs> pandemic quit. I just had, you know, all the food I, I needed. I knew I had the skills to attain more. I had the skills to preserve it with or without electricity, you know, and it's all things that I've, I've slowly taught myself over my, my lifetime, mostly out of just um, interest in it and, and, through my passion for food just just pushes me to explore all the the outer reaches of it um so i got into pickling i got into canning i got into fermentation i got into fishing and butchery and all these different things and and my passion for for food kind of caused me to be a self-sufficient person because I, i developed all these skills and seeing um, the underside or like beyond the veil of the, our supply chain system um, made me feel like um, pretty happy with myself that I was able to to develop those skills just in case it does ever get really bad. Um, and they're not terribly hard skills to master either. I think most people could spend a few weekends and learn how to how to stock their their pantry properly. You know, um, some things like hunting. Uh, which has been one of my last big mountains to climb here. Um, it takes a lot more to get into than a couple of weekends, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> but but developing that that connection to your food, developing that self sustainability, and just allows you peace of mind to to carry on with whatever is happening outside in the world. You know that you can you know have enough for your community, whether that's your, your family or your neighborhood or whatever. Um, and I find the added benefit is, is by doing that, you actually develop connections to your community, to the people around you, to the landscape around you, uh, to, to history and, and traditions and, and also new things as well it's a it's a pretty amazing way of living and i've kind of stumbled across it like upon it rather than sought it out um but i i, I would never look back it's it's just a an amazing way to live i think and, it, and it's not something you need to develop devote your entire life to it's just something like good habits to to build and and skills to know and i think it's pretty attainable for for pretty much anyone who wants to uh put a little time and effort in I love how you said that, yeah, it's not it, It's not a whole, like, list of skills that you need to develop all the once and that in a couple weekends, you can figure out how to can something. I mean, there's a million videos. It says right there on the cans that you buy, like, this is how you can it. But then the, even the, the bit that you said about it, too, is that it, it includes community. It includes folks. We're not we're not going hermits. We're not pulling away and like circling the wagon so tight that it's just our small unit or just, you know, the one single family unit, but it spreads out to the community that 
when you can something, it's a, an event. Like you might as well bring in, you know, five to ten families. Like let's make this a huge canning thing. Or, you know, when we butcher deer, it usually ends up being like four or five guys bring all their deer over. I mean, we got the knives out. We're let's the grinder is warm. Let's get it. Let's get it chugging through. So, it really does. As we get these skills and as we develop this, it also like it's almost like a reach out. It's almost like a um, a community building aspect at that point. Yeah, it says self sustainable, but at the same time, it's like almost like community sustainable or building community at that point. I think that's really profound at how you were you were pushing that. Yeah, it's 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 amazing how many people I've met doing something relatively solitary. Like I cook alone. I like I hunt with some people, but like a lot of these um, activities are kind of done on my own, but to do them, I have to, I, I've met farmers. I met other hunters. I've met um, my neighbors. I've met all these people in my community. And now that I'm on social media, I've actually developed this crazy community of people all over the world. Um, there's people in the Middle East and Africa and Asia joining in and chatting with me about, about their food ways and their culture and their communities. And uh, that's really cool too, just to see how the, how similar we are across the world and how um, those communities can just spread too, from your very immediate one in your household to the, the, right across the entire world. It's pretty wild. It is. It is. Yeah. Go with that. Like going way over to some other continent. I never thought that I would be like, I need to, I need to make shakashuka, which is mm-hmm. like traditional African breakfast. And it's like, why all of a sudden this is a thing that I'm like, I, I need to figure that out. Like I want, like when we can't go camping this year, it's like, that's what I want for one of the breakfasts. I want a big old pan of shakashuka. So that'll be a whole episode in itself for what my, when next week guess we talk to on that. But as we're going out and we're still talking about this community, you yourself are going to be taking off just the solo hat you're going to be putting on the instructor hat you get to help in butchering and processing at a hog camp i understand you're going to be joining the harvesting nature nature crew and uh doing some hog hunting yeah that's correct it's a super cool opportunity um i've been working with harvesting nature for a year and a half or so now uh contributing recipes and working along with the guys there and uh it's a really cool, awesome group of people. And for the first time, I'll actually be able to meet them in person. I was invited to this um, hunting skills camp. It's the first one so far, and I think there will be more to come. And this one's all about wild hogs. So it's in it's in North Texas. Um, we're doing like three days, four nights. And covering everything for like anyone who's ever um, wanted to hunt hogs. Someone like me living up in Ontario, there's, there's no hog hunting up here. So, so this is a really cool opportunity to go down and and try it out. Um, and we'll, the group of instructors, which includes me, will bring you through, um, hunting them, shooting them, cleaning them, butchering them, cooking them, which is where I'm mostly, um, helping out. And, uh, and wrapping it up and packing it home. So just start to finish, um, everything you need to know about hog hunting all in one camp. So it's a pretty cool opportunity. And uh, I'm super excited not only to be part of it and to meet all these people in person, finally and meet everyone else who comes along, but also to learn more about, about hunting uh, from the other instructors there as well. So I think it'd be just a once in a lifetime opportunity. I can't wait. Awesome. Awesome. And yeah, going after hogs, it's, it's such a polarizing thing right now. It's like, uh, we've seen it really rise up. It is the invasive that needs to be controlled, but at the same time, it has worked itself in a way that we we want to continue to pursue this animal so much. But at the same time, we know the destruction that it does. Like we want to, we want it to go away, but do we really want to to go away? It's <laughs> <laughs> interesting I'm, right now in in Ontario. Um, we just started to see the first wild hogs just coming through the border now. Um, so there's, there's quite a few wild hogs in, in, um, Saskatchewan and Alberta already, but this year seems to be the first time we found them in Ontario and they did a strict no hunting decision. Um, and they're going to try to 
um, first of all, keep them out of Ontario if, they, if possible, and then to eradicate them via like trapping or other or other means. Uh, and it's caused quite a quite an uproar between hunters and non-hunters and and uh, conservationists and all these different people. Um, some people want to hunt the hogs. Some people think it's a good idea or a bad idea. Um, it'd be interesting to see how it unfolds. Um, even though I'd love to be able to hunt hogs, I would rather they didn't show up here <laughs> so <they> destroy <laughs> all the farmers. Go, <laughs> yeah, you want to go someplace yeah. and help, but I don't want to have need help at home from them. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> what well, my experience with hogs is more on the domestic side. Um, you know, I'm in Michigan, so yeah, again, I don't have a ton. They got to get through a couple big old Great Lakes, and they haven't <laughs> found their way to do that. And it's cold; they'd rather hang out down south. Um, at least the 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 breeds that are here in the states. But when it comes to a hog, it's almost like a perfect culinary invention. I mean, when they came across on a boat, you know, they have these live hogs. You can practically eat everything on this animal. The whole the whole phrase that goes along with it, on a hog, you can eat everything but the squeal. When you're butchering out a hog, are you thinking about every tip? And, I mean, the nose-to-tail aspect, I think, is really resonating when it comes to pork. Yeah, for sure. Pork is the one of the best animals for nose tail eaters because like you said you can eat pretty much everything on them and uh i'm sure there's a couple parts i haven't eaten yet but i've gone, done a pretty good job <laughs> making my way through to a pig so uh, i've never shied away from from the you know different organ meats or or um heads and hooves and and literally noses and tails uh and it's all been good and a lot of people have a have an aversion to those um, kind of offcuts, but I think the future of sustainable eating, um, uh, considering the prices of food shooting up, um, and considering those cuts are often a lot cheaper. Like I, I, I and it's been on the rise. Uh, people interested in eating those tail. I, I think it is the future of of meat eating. Um, and I think it's the the responsible option as well. And uh, the good thing about that is it's the d- delicious option as well because it's <laughs> like all these parts, if you cook them right, like this isn't your grandma's like beaten to death, cooked to death liver and onions. Like there's a lot of stuff you can really do with, with all these off cuts that will blow your mind. Um, and we enjoy them at home here like quite often. Um in all sorts of different ways. And I, I just can't get enough of them. <laughs> I'm just having like an epiphany as, as you were talking and you just mentioned the idea of sustainable meat eating. Um, but on a couple different levels, number one, I think I'm too prideful to be like saying like, uh, that I'm not going to eat meat, like uh, that I'm going to cut back. Like, I feel like, no, I don't have, because I, somehow I feel entitled to that. And maybe that's a mindset that I need to get, get over but at the same time I do feel like part of my health and part of my vitality and part of like how I feel comes from my source of food and a lot of that includes protein be it domestic be it wild but meat is a big fundamental part of of my life my eating and and my family's but like you were just mentioning like maybe it's going to be the future of meeting meat eating is going to be like a seasonal style, almost to like beer drinking. I hold up a porter here. I don't, I don't drink this in July. It's, you know, too heavy. And maybe it's one of those things like, you know, my shoulders and my brazings, brazing pieces, while I can cook those in the summer, I'm, I might not save those for the long winter where I have the time to cook those. And like what you're saying with the offcuts, like almost eat seasonality when it or seasonally when it comes to the hog that you know the first bits they're going to gonna have to go are going to be that awful i don't want to say awful because it's not but to get into that and to be thinking about these pieces and parts that have to go quickly that are that are hard to freeze that are hard to uh preserve eat those up first and then we can enjoy those other cuts that have the ability to be stored i know that that was just an epiphany that i I literally had sitting right here. 
Yeah, and, and what you're describing is just simply the way we used to eat meat. Um, you know, we butcher a hog and and we'd cure the hams and we'd, you know, set aside all the things that we that we could stretch into the winter and we'd eat all the stuff that we couldn't right away, and, and different ingenious dishes that would really stretch it along. Um, chickens used to be a special Sunday dinner, not an a, every lunch kind of meal. Um, you know, you would go and kill a chicken for for a dinner. And you probably didn't have 300 chickens running around that you could, you know, in your backyard that you could kill every day. Um, and I really do believe that that moving back towards a traditional way of eating meat um, is one way to continue eating meat sustainably and responsibly without moving into um, vegetarianism, which I'm not all that interested in. Um, <laughs> but... To, I do believe that we need to move away from factory farm and and gluttonous meat eating and by eating the entire animal in season when it, when it should be eaten uh, by fishing and hunting and, and harvesting animals in certain seasons uh, when they're at their best and they're most likely to continue breeding and, and procreating um, we can still be eat meat eaters and 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 do that responsibly and sustainably, I think. And uh, I can see that being pretty cool with, you know, like all parties involved. Um, that everyone, like the people who want to eat meat get to still eat meat. They just do it the right way. <laughs> and that's tough. I mean, because we're, we're messing with people's plates. We're messing with people's way of life. And... I would say just as these past two years have shown that if you start to mess with people's lifestyle, they're not going to be happy about it. And but at the same time to look at it, maybe to come to the table more as like, a, hey, if we want to continue to do this, I even look at it like switching over ammunition to switching away from lead. Like I know guys have their certain loads that they really love and they've like, hey, this this seven uh, seven ounce shot is, or excuse me, one ounce shot, seven size seven is just my perfect go to when it comes to small game, and to ask them to switch off of lead and go into tungsten or to go into copper, like that's a that's a hard change because you know, it it begins the learning process all over mm -hmm. again. There's that element of being uncomfortable, but I think as we self impose some of those actions and even to introduce this idea of you know what when i when we do take an animal maybe it's not enough to just take the quarters maybe yeah maybe we're open up that paunch and save the liver and get creative and for a lot of folks it's going to be try liver for the very first time it's it's been one of those things that has been pushed away to the old school that like you might mentioned in earlier liver and onions is tired you know, it doesn't get many fans, but at the same time, liver doesn't have to live just in that. It can expand into several other areas, whether it's mixed into a sausage or whether if it, you know, made into some sort of mousse, it can be palatable and it can be used. And I, I think that's where my job like comes into play here. Not just to tell people that, you know, you've got to eat liver and you've got to eat these organs and you've got to change the way you eat. Um, cause that doesn't work. Like you said, we're, we're seeing firsthand that that just doesn't work. Um, but maybe if I show a beautiful dish that looks delectable and it's a liver dish or a kidney dish or, or made it from a foot, um, and it doesn't look like a soggy old plate of liver and onions, it, maybe it looks, you know, uh, colorful and, and vibrant and, and delicious looking maybe that will change minds fa uh, faster than, than just yelling at people. <laughs> so, so hopefully like what I'm doing is, is helping to, to push that along a little, a little more. There's this um, sandwich that I made that's from, um, from Egypt. It's like a liver sandwich. Um, it's called Kebda Eskandari, I believe. And Say that one more time. <laughs> Kebda Eskandari. I'm probably saying it wrong. Um, but it's basically if you stuffed beef fajitas into a sandwich and ate it, it's, it's so delicious. Like, like 
I'd be surprised if someone ate it and didn't like it. Um, and that's just straight up sauteed livers and, and a few different ingredients. Um, there's dishes out there that will that would blow your mind, and and we just don't know about them yet. So, part of my my mission, I guess, is to to spread the spread the word of <laughs> nose tail to tail eating and make it look palatable for people. We've all been there. The animal is down. The hunt is over. However, the work now begins. For meativore and huntivores alike, who take it upon themselves to process their carcass, they require dedication, a strong back, and attention to detail. The folks over at Made With Meat have the same dedication when it comes to producing equipment that is commercial grade, yet accessible to the home butcher. If you need to prepare, process, or preserve your game, they got it. I picked up their chamber vacuum sealer one year ago, and it has been an incredible investment. The ease of pre-made pouches, good suction from the chamber and not having to suck the air from the bag itself, the high-quality seal that won't break. I've used it on butchered wild game, fish fillets, divided up goodies from the smoker, and was able to portion out large batch items. I made a 10-pound batch of barbacoa and froze the rest in one-pound bags. Now, anytime the kids want Benny nachos, we just grab a bag and it's ready to go. Made With Meat has a whole lineup of equipment covered by a limited lifetime warranty. Head over to madewithmeat.com or find the link in the show notes. Use the coupon code HUNTIVORE10, all lowercase, at checkout to take 10% off your order. Hey, get ready to step up your meat game. Your profile, from what I've seen, as as we go through all these pictures, it just every picture upon picture just looks so appetizing. It's it's one that you want to eat, but then it's like there, there's also this this playful element. And I know one one particular thing that really got me excited was a post that you've done. I think it was maybe last week or two weeks ago, where you jumped into the Far East and actually made your own sushi and kimbab and i i should say because it's all cooked you could probably do a way better job of explaining this than i am but because you had all cooked elements in your sushi that makes it more of a korean style kimbab correct yeah the 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 lines start to blur pretty quickly (laughs) and I'm, i'm no sushi expert i would say but um Kimbap generally has more ingredients than they're generally cooked or preserved in some way like kimchi. Sushi generally has less ingredients, usually raw fish or vegetables. Um, then you get into Western-style sushi. So you're getting your California rolls, your Philly rolls or whatever with the cream cheese in it or, or you know, dip fruit and meat. Um, so I would say the 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 fun experimentation I've been doing with, with let's just call it sushi is, is more in that Western sushi kind of side where any sushi master from Japan would probably weep and tear his vestments <laughs> seeing yeah. what we're doing to it. But it's delicious all the same and, and it's a lot of fun. Uh, so I would never, I would never say that it's any sort of traditional or proper sushi doll, but it, it's just a playful, um, Playfully inspired by by traditional sushi, I would say. And, gotcha. And <laughs> gotcha. And what I'm referring to is I came across a post where uh, Adam made uh, basically fried crappie or like pan fried crappie with a little bit of breading on the outside. And he's got that into a, a sushi roll that he's then cut up and then been able to plate up. And then as I looked further, I saw him using... Um, different cuts i think one of them looked like it was more of like a braised meat at that point it was more of a shredded that you had put into that wrap and had a a couple other items in there but you were essentially taking normal i don't want to say normal you're taking the wild game that we've been able to harvest and just have this fun new presentation to eating it that it's not just simply fried fried fillets that you dip in tartar sauce but now we've got it wrapped up in some seaweed with some really sticky rice. And I think it just offers like a way cool presentation on the whole thing. Where So your inspiration just kind of came from these, uh, from the traditional sense. 
are you just trying to use up different bits, or were you trying to go with some of mixing your flavors? Uh, the um, the crappy dish was actually inspired from an uh, out of necessity because we caught one crappy. Uh, we've been ice my partner and I've been ice fishing a lot, and we haven't been doing all too well. And we came home with one crappy that night that my partner caught. She's been catching all the fish. Um, well, I've been watching her catch them, uh, and you know, I, I've been I've been trying to follow kind of Hank Shaw's been talking about this method of of catching fish, killing them instantly, bleeding them out, um, ends up as better better tasting fish, cleaner tasting fish. So I didn't have it on a string or anything. I just killed the fish right when it came out of the water. Um, we never caught another one, so I'm like, okay, we got we have one crappy. Well, we got one. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> crappy notoriously don't freeze very well, so I'd rather not freeze it. So I'm thinking, how am I going to stretch one crappy out into a you know hefty meal for two? Um, and I thought, well, I need some sort of starchy filler, probably, and what better than rice? And then that started forming in my head into sushi. So. And what I kind of was what wanted to do if we had caught a mess of crappy was fish and chips. Um, so then I thought, well, maybe I can still do that and do fish and chip sushi. So I did. I flayed the fish and um, fried the, the flays in tempura batter, which is like a Japan, a really light Japanese uh, batter uh, made just from sifted flour, water, and egg. Um, and made some french fries and slapped those into... A sushi roll and rolled it all up and and with a little bit of tartar sauce <laughs> so it was uh yeah a really fun way and the, the one one regular size crappy fed the two of us with with you know food to spare so um that's another kind of avenue into responsible eating and, and you know not needing to harvest 30 crappy to you know do a few fillets and eat them like one crappy actually fed the two of us. If you do it properly, it's kind of, it's kind of cool and a really fun, fun dish for us too. Yeah. So if we're going to, we're going to break down a little bit of, of your procedures here. Um, Cause I'm sure there's already a lot of people that are going to be like, listen, we're, we're not going to learn some new traditional far East technique because it's just going to take a lot of work. And it's like, I, I did my little venture onto YouTube as I was getting ready for this. I was like, all right, let's see if we can't find a few techniques here. And one guy did it, and he didn't have any special equipment. It was literally just him rolling up or basically spreading out the rice and then rolling it in his hands. Have you gone to using one of the bamboo rolls, or are you just doing this by hand? It all depends on on what I'm doing. Usually, I use a bamboo roller, which you can get at most grocery stores now for you know two or three bucks. Um, and from there, I've been using um, my hands to do. Sometimes you can just roll into cones, um, and so instead of doing the traditional rolls, you can just wrap up your rice and and fish into a kind of a cone, which you can do by hand. Um, and either way, it's it's relatively easy. I actually learned how to make sushi when I was 12 years old. Um, my aunt came and visited from the West Coast, and she showed me how. So, um, if I can do it as a if I can do it as a 12 year old, I'm sure anyone can do it <laughs> uh, now. So, it's it takes very few tools. Like like I said, this bamboo roller, which costs a couple bucks. It's usually you can find it if your kind of bigger grocery store has like a little pre made sushi section. They usually be selling them there along with all the rest of the ingredients you'll need. Um, and from there, you just need some, some rice and the seaweed sheets, which can be found there as well. And it's, it's, you can go super simple or you can start to make it, you can elevate it into something really special and both are available to, to anyone who wants to learn. So, well, good deal. Yeah. I'm going to be mixing it cause I don't have a bamboo roll. In fact, we were gifted, uh, like a sushi kit. And it was like, hey, that'll be fun. Great, thanks. And then it sat in our closet for ever. And I think at that point, I think we moved it on. I think it went and got donated because we just hadn't touched it. And then all of a sudden I was like, hey, babe, do we still have that uh, sushi kit? And she's like, no, that thing's way gone. I was like, oh, well, now I'm now I'm in the mood to make sushi. But I, I was going to use a placemat. I've got a like a cloth placemat that um, 
actually we take it camping, but anyway, it's got like that water repellent um, outside, and I was going to use that instead of the bamboo just because that's what I have on hand as far as going to be able to roll that up. I was just going to suggest it actually, so that's yeah, that's good. <laughs> oh, good, good. So you don't yeah. need all the necessary equipment if you didn't want to use your hands. If you had the bamboo sheet, you know that would be a great thing. Or like yeah, like just a a cloth placemat that might actually just get you enough to be able to roll that up. Because at that point, the sheet's dry. It's It can freely move on whatever surface. The only thing that's going to get tacky is the part that you're going to want to wet once you're rolling it all up. Say it like a like an envelope or even like if you're essentially rolling a cigar, you're going to wet that end so that it will then the or the, wet the seaweed, the open seaweed end, so that it adheres together. But otherwise than that, it's pretty much a dry process. Yeah, exactly. And uh, and it's not as finicky as it sounds either. It's it's it comes maybe your first one or two might be a little rough, but it comes pretty naturally after that. So it's it's not too hard at all. With our rice, um, I think in the write up that you put, which got me at least thinking about it, you went with a medium grain rice. I'm sure we could do another whole hour on just the different variations of rice going from short grain, medium grain, long grain. I think in your write-up you suggested like medium grain would probably give you the stickiness that you were looking for, whereas the long grain might not give you as much. Was that was that you were that were talking about, or was that with somebody else that I read? Uh, I've read I've said something similar, so it might have been me. Okay. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, long grain you're looking at like you know jasmine and basmati kind of rice, and those are made to to be individual pieces of rice and that won't do you any good in sushi because you want it to be just to adhere to the the seaweed paper and you want it to stay together so a short grain or medium grain rice um and a lot of the times in the grocery store you can just find bags of sushi it just says sushi rice on it and and that takes all the guesswork right out of it for you but if you can't find sushi rice then like you know even an arborio or, or these kind of shorter medium grain rice will be sticky enough to actually do the job properly Gotcha. I, I had my wife venture out and I was I was trying to be as specific as I could just to help her out. And she goes, I found medium grain and I was like, is this really what he needed? But then there was Japanese writing all over the package. So she was like, I'm assuming this is going to be good enough. If they if they can put their print on it, I'm sure it can be used for, su- for sushi at that point. Yeah, I'd say you're pretty safe. <laughs> and as a as a large Midwesterner, as one who has a large midsection, I I know my way around Tex-Mex. And so if I'm kind of putting this this building together, you go through those first couple burritos where you overdo the stuffing, where you've done too much and you end up bursting out of your tortilla. And the first couple are going to be tough, but then as, as you get into the groove, you figure out, okay, less is actually more when it comes to making a burrito same mindset kind of goes along with with sushi making do i want to be uh what do i want to say do i want to be kind of strict with how much filling i want to put in just so that i can get that to hold all together yeah i would say so you're, you're better off going uh, using your ingredients sparingly um once you get better at rolling you can stuff them pretty large but then you also have to contend with once you slice them into your sushi rolls um, or, or kimbap, you have to somehow get that into your mouth. So if you have a massive stuffed roll, it's going to be struggling with it. So, so I say go, go on the light side. And also keep in mind that you're going to be slicing this roll into discs. And if you use ingredients that are going to fall apart, they're probably going to fall right out of your, these discs that you cut. Um, so I like to try to keep ingredients long and thin, um, that span right across the entire, uh, sheet of seaweed and the rice. Um, so like say if I was using green onions, I wouldn't chop the green onions. I would cut the green onions into long, thin strips and lay them across. And that way, when you slice the sushi roll, that's not, all your fillings aren't just going to fall out on you. Uh, which I've done a bunch of times is, is incredibly annoying. So <laughs> now I just go long, thin strips and keep it relatively light and 
once you get good at it, you can start to experiment more with how much you can actually get into a roll and how big of a roll you can stuff into your mouth. <laughs> it's, it's an interesting topic you brought, or I mean a segment you brought up there, because as I'm, as I'm wanting to create some of these, I'm also trying to think of like, okay, well, I'm, I'm going to start with some bluegill fillets, but you know, I want to, I'm going to move into some venison and, you know, taking an eye round, which I think would be a great cut for this. You got long fiber strands, but at the same time, it's inherently tender. Um, you know, going with a, a tenderloin, a backstrap would all work, but I think even an eye, eye round would work out fabulous for that. But if I get into something like, man, where I've, I've braised down. It's really hard to cut squirrel into long sections or to get even, like, meat without bone or without pellets, you know, so you you want to braise things down. Just in my little venture, and I don't know how much practice you've had with that. You were mentioned that sometimes you'd get some of these shorter thing, these shorter pieces that would fall out. If I'm going to use a braised meat, what I was seeing was they would actually lay down some sort of – basically, I want – yeah, almost like a second wrapper. They were using like a flat lettuce leaf or even like you could lay down several, for us would be, I guess, spinach. Like you would just lay down several pieces of spinach in a, in a row, drop your braised meat into that, make your, ro- and then roll it up at that point. And that acts as a, almost like a, just a, something for that meat to hold onto or to hold it inside there to keep it from falling out. Have you done anything kind of like that? Or is this kind of like a, a new thing that we should all check out. I found for the for the braised meat, which I have done before, um, it's gonna be hard to to describe it maybe. But if if I'm laying it down onto the sheet of rice, so if you picture kind of a, a rectangle with the shorter end facing you, um, I'm gonna pull that shredded meat so that it's kind of interlaced with itself across the the sheet instead of into globs. So I'm gonna so it's kind of still interconnected with each other. So when you do cut it, you're still cutting through parts of the, the shredded meat. If you were to use ground beef or ground venison that you cooked and crumbled, that's gonna give you that's gonna be problematic. Because no matter what you do when you cut it, it's gonna it's gonna tumble out. So say if I wanted to use ground meat ground meat in it, I would form the ground meat into a log, cook it like a meatloaf almost, and then put it in like that, um, just so it's not all crumbly. But I think the braised meat will be fine considering that it's going to be kind of all all tangled and interlaced with each other anyways. So once you slice it, it's not just going to tumble right out on you. Um, and for the, the kimbap itself, actually, the, the way... Um, Koreans often do it. They would use something like uh, an eye round, actually, which I think I used for that. Um, slice it really thinly, and just do a really quick light braise with it, uh, just so it's it's tender but not like breaking down into into little bits. And that kind of has the same effect where where when you lay it down, it's kind of intertangled with itself and will hold its shape once you slice it into discs. Gotcha, gotcha. So if you are gonna go with the braised aspect where we've shredded the meat allow it to overlap itself so that it's you're going to get that congealing effect. You're going to have some sort of where that is going to hold itself together enough to get you to make your rounds. If you're going to go with the the ground meat aspect, which everybody's got ground meat, you would almost make, like you said, like a meatloaf or like a large burger patty, score it or make the, the, the longer cuts from that. That's a great way to be able to do that because at that point we each have – you know, whether it be whole muscle, braised feet, you know, braised several muscle groups, or even ground meat, we can each come back to this dish and at least have a different, like, once you're done with one muscle group, like, well, you're not, you're not done making it. You can have different, several different, different ways to do it. I like that. I like that. That's a very yeah. good point. And I find with, with, if you're using meat in like, um, say kimbap kind of way, um, adding something a little, um, sour to it, it actually is nice. Like if you think like a, a pickle along with your um, smoked meat sandwich kind of thing or corned beef sandwich, um, you want a little bit of acidity to cut through and Koreans will often put um, pickled vegetables in with, with their meat, like kimchi or, or um, I can't remember what it's called, but it's like kind of yellow pickled radish. Um, 
So if you're considering putting meat into the sushi or kimbap roll, maybe consider like a really thin, small piece of pickle or something kind of acidic to go along with it. And, and I think it will, it creates like just a more balanced flavor that will be way more enjoyable than just straight up meat inside it. Yes. I, I really like that idea too, going with the acidic and the savory together, you know, with the umami balance of the, with the sour. Cause yeah, I wanted to add the vegetables in there too. I mean, that's a fun crunch aspect, especially if you're using something of the braised sort, you know, there's not going to be a lot of crunch to that meat. You need some sort of texture. Otherwise we have seaweed, rice, and soft meat all into one. It's more of just a, mm -hmm. you know, it's just this mash in the mouth. So to add that crunch element and yeah, adding that pickling, whether it be a legitimate pickle or, you know, like even like probably a pickled onion. I think that would be a lot of fun too, to be add, added be into that. Absolutely. Well, I feel like at this point, you know, it's dealer's choice when it comes to whatever you want to put in there. There's no rules other than give it a shot, roll it up, and see if you can't slice it up. So now, if we're going to get even more on a personal level, talk to me about your freezer. If we're going to talk to the intrepid eater and I were to go in and open up your freezer, what's probably the most abundant thing that you have in there right now? Uh, that's a hard call. I got a little bit of everything in there right now. But probably most abundant would be uh, goose, I would say. Uh, Canada goose, uh, which I, I eat a lot and I really enjoy hunting. It's one of the few things I'm half decent at hunting for. <laughs> so, so I end up with a lot of it. Um, and then beyond that, I have, um, some lamb left from a, a local lamb that I, uh, I, I bought from, a, a farm and, and butchered myself. Um, lots of fish, uh, venison and, and, uh, probably a dozen or about 10 grouse or so. Um, yeah, so it's, and then lots and lots of odds and ends, all sorts of different little critters in there. <laughs> Well, I like it. It's it's a smorgasbord at that point. It's not just the straight venison that you know that I, I was thinking I was going to get, but you have got a whole bounty when it comes in there. Whether it you know flies, crawls, sneaks along the ground, you've got a lot of different choices there. Well, this has been an awesome hour, Adam. I have really enjoyed talking with you, and you have a wealth of knowledge that I feel like we've just poked and chipped the top of the iceberg here. Where can my listeners find out a little bit more? about the intrepid eater uh let us know where we can find you online well first of all you can go to the intrepid um if you want like a full picture tutorial on how to make kimbap i have it on my website and it's probably a little easier to, to look at it than just hear me talking about it um i have lots of how to's on there i have lots of tons of recipes um lots of cool stuff so check me out there I'm the Intrepid Eater on Facebook and the.intrepid.eater on um, Instagram. You can also find me. I have a few videos on YouTube with more coming. Um, so you can find me on, on any of those channels. You can always message me on any of them and, and, and have a chat. I'd love to chat with anyone who, who has questions or just wants to know more. Well, perfect, perfect. Yeah, I'm going to definitely put those links in our show notes that folks can, can get a hold of you and, yeah, continue this idea of using our protein sustainably. This has been a great talk. I want to have you hold on for just a second, Adam, as I send our listeners on out. Folks, I hope you got excited uh, as much as I have tonight on just, yeah, thinking about Again, we go back to that self-sustainability idea, and we want to make sure that we can continue to eat meat that we love to do every single day. But it might include having us kind of really take a hard look at that and wonder, what does sustainable meat eating look like? Does it mean having our favorite cuts every single day? Or is it going to be one of those things where we're going to have to adopt a nose-to-tail aspect and maybe learn a few things along the way? whether it's preservation, whether it's smoking, or whether it's using an innard that we've never had experienced using. I think this is going to kind of be the wave of the future that Adam was looking at. If we're going to keep eating meat, you know what? We might have to think about making some, some self-inward choices. 
But at the same time, he's offered us a great way to show that in a presentation when it comes to then trying out something new, like the idea of making sushi. So folks, whether it's you are taking advantage of a liver or a kidney, make sure you do it with your knife being sharp.